You're listening to 16 Artists, a conversation series with young creators finding their way in the world. My name is Raylan, and my goal in sharing these conversations with you is to demystify life in the arts and nourish your creative spirit. This podcast is presented in partnership with the Office for the Arts at Harvard. This week, I spoke with Kiara Barrow and Rebecca Panovka, who are co-editors of a new culture and politics magazine called The Drift. Launched right around when the pandemic hit last year, this magazine is introducing new work and new ideas by young writers who haven't yet been absorbed into the media hive mind. The publication has been lauded already for its bracing new sensibility and gorgeous writing. I sat down with Rebecca and Kiara to talk about how they went about breaking new ground in the magazine world and the personal journeys they've been on through this process. I began by asking Rebecca about how she made the transition from studying documentary filmmaking into creating this magazine with Kiara. I think to be really good at the type of documentary I wanted to do, I had to be manipulative in ways that started to make me feel bad. I had this experience shooting a documentary after college during my year in London, where this woman was um, this this kind of bereaved woman wanting to tell me the story of her affair with the ghost of a Nazi commandant. And I like knew that this woman, like I knew it was, it was gold, right? It was exactly what a documentary filmmaker should film. And I like had this moment of looking at her and holding the camera and she wanted to be filmed, taking me to the scene of the like, the place where she had resurrected his spirit. I I went there, I literally had the camera, was pointing it at her and I could not shoot that story. Uh, I just couldn't do it. And I I had her tell it to me and I went out to lunch with her and I sort of realized it wasn't what I wanted to be doing in that that day. (laughs) And then separately, you know, I I was still kind of pursuing documentary projects, still thinking about reporting in various ways. And Kiara and I had been talking for a while about doing something. We didn't know exactly what. We'd been talking sort of about our just complaints with the media landscape. We were both um, following everything really closely, both reading a lot of magazines, listening to a lot of podcasts, and wanting to be part of it, wanting to be part of the kind of larger cultural conversation that was going on. And yeah, Kiara actually came and stayed with me for a while on my couch in London. And we just like had a bunch of conversations about... uh, the state of things, the state of the media. It was right after Me Too. We're talking a lot about that. And yeah, that that seemed more interesting to me. And we kind of got it together to do this magazine. You know, I think I visited her in London, like beginning of 2018. So it was a, a project was brewing for a while. And then we kind of started working on it in earnest. And then we're getting pretty close to launching when the pandemic hit. And we had a moment of worrying that you know, that was just the end, that it you know wouldn't really be possible to launch. We weren't going to be able to have events in, in person. And then after kind of a few months when things settled into like the new-ish normal, I think we realized that actually it created something of an opportune moment to launch because everyone was at home, everyone was in front of their computers looking for something new to read. And so we ended up kind of getting quite a lot of attention, especially in our first week, especially online, I think due to some of the media insularity that we've talked about. The media is always interested in things about itself. It's always <laughs> interested in a new magazine that is coming to critique the other magazines and like carve out its own place, which we did a little bit of. And people were intrigued. 
and that generated a little bit of controversy among people at other small magazines who maybe felt a little bit competitive. And that ended up really kind of snowballing and just getting a lot of eyes on, on the magazine. So from there was kind of the initial launch pad to, to really grow a platform and an audience since in the past like almost year. The day we launched, um, we were exhausted, both of us. I'd pulled an all-nighter. I hadn't slept the night before. I was like not really functioning. And I was thinking, okay, as soon as we hit publish, I can go take a nap. Mm. And then 10 minutes after we published, we were like getting bashed on Twitter, which Ten, is... Wow. It was 10 minutes. I was thinking I can go like, eat some breakfast, get some coffee. <laughs> nope. Um, immediately we were getting bashed on Twitter, which is a, you know, cynically a, a good way to get attention. <laughs> Um, and then since then, we haven't gotten um, negative attention in that way. It's been kind of um, heartening. At that point, we'd spent kind of years talking this over and, and probably about a year working on it in earnest, six months working on it like really hard. And the whole time, you know, in the back of our heads, there was the assumption that, okay, lots of people launch things. This is just not going to go anywhere. You know, it's very possible that we could put all this work in and nobody will ever read it. And I think we have just felt so unbelievably lucky over the last um, now six or eight months that that didn't happen, that, you know, people have been reading our stuff, which is just really cool, reading it and then and liking it. It's been um, really a shock how seriously people have taken it. There's something very refreshing about the way in which the publication is aware of the media environment it exists in. And so in that way, it feels very fitting for a digital paradigm. And I'd love to know more about how you thought about creating a publication with that kind of awareness. I mean, I almost feel like in this day and age, it's impossible to make a new publication without being kind of self-aware about doing so, since we're living through a period of just so much change in the media we constantly are hearing about the death of print, the death of newspapers and magazines. I mean, we already have been for a while and it only seems to kind of accelerate. So I think in some ways it's unavoidable to be a little bit self-conscious about the project of making a new magazine in, you know, 2020, which is when we started. I think when we were initially thinking about it, I mean, there was an element of it that almost seemed a little bit ridiculous when we were kind of talking about it. You know, we at one point talked about making a podcast, which just seems so much more appropriate to the contemporary landscape. There are just so many of those. I think that is in part why we wanted to do something that engages with such a long history and a history that, as Rebecca said, we both really love. I mean, I think we both have always loved reading magazines. We really admire the form and the way that especially our magazine, which is quarterly, gives us an opportunity to weigh in on current events at a slow pace, but not quite as slow of a pace as, say, books. I worked in book publishing for a little bit, and they're just kind of on a several-year delay at which they can kind of respond to events that happen. And then there's you know, the internet, which is constantly churning out articles and responses to the news of the hour. And I think we like to sit in this medium where we can respond to things in a way that's considered and thoughtful, but still relevant. In this medium, medium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think there, I mean, in some ways there is so much reflexivity in media at large at the moment 
that is not always necessarily a good thing. There's quite a lot of insularity, I think, especially as as the industry contracts, so much more of it is concentrated in cities like New York. And that creates these, these little worlds where, you know, people who work in media all know each other and, and the things that go on within the media take on an outsized importance for the media and for other people in the media. And it becomes a little bit of an insular situation. So I think we wanted to both, as much as we can, walk the line between commenting on that, calling that out, understanding that we will ultimately probably unavoidably become somewhat part of that. I think you're walking the line really well because for me, part of what's refreshing and um, what's some part of what's refreshing about the drift and also what I think keeps it in touch with the world outside is the way you're creating a platform for a lot of young writers and each of these young people um, has a perspective that's, been forged in this paradigm. And so they probably are also asking these similar questions or craving these similar kinds of new communication. So when you read it, it feels very fresh. It feels like um, it's creating that kind of conversation that maybe these magazines did for their time um, offline, but it's doing so in a way that's on online. Um, that's not so much a question, which is, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's definitely very important to us to be bringing in new voices and we can, we can talk more about how we think about that, but bringing in perspectives that haven't always been mainstays in media or people who haven't already lived in New York for 10 years and, and know everyone else in media here. Yeah. Something that gives me a sense of comfort sometimes is when we have these angsty questions about like, what's wrong with the media scape or in, in my case, I've been reckoning with, you know, how to fit into a music industry as someone who plays the yangqin, which is an instrument no one's ever heard of, few people have, is that when we when we have these angsty questions, there are a lot of other people who probably share those questions. And it what happens when we talk to them? Um, because then it's like, oh, we're not alone in in wanting change. So can you tell me a little bit about maybe some of the surprises that came from being in conversation with these writers? Yeah. I mean, I think we've been amazed by how much kind of being online has allowed us to reach different corners of the world and people and communities that we would not have expected to. And in some ways, I think it's been easier, at least than I expected, to like find people who are, have similar interests, who are coming almost out of nowhere, just kind of emailing us with an idea. We you get all emails every day from people who, who pitch us ideas. And it's been just amazing to see how they, how, where they all come from, how much they have in common with things that we're thinking about, where there are connections between, you know, developing political situations here and where they match developing political situations elsewhere. One of the pieces that did the best for us in our last issue was from a young writer in Nairobi writing about concerns that are both very, very local to his city and also like very, very much parallel with conversations that are happening here and in other parts of the world. So I think, you know, it's like very much a truism that the internet, you know, connects everyone and you find your communities. But I think it has been been really great to see that to me. Kiara, I'd love to hear more about what your experience was like working in the publishing industry. 
I kind of right after college started working and publishing at one of the big publishing houses. And I went in already a little bit ambivalent. I knew I loved, you know, working with books and reading and editing and writing. But I think I already had the sense that the industry was a little bit old fashioned, a little bit slow paced. And so I maybe kind of already went in with that bias, but it was definitely confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) I Consider this bias confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) I think I felt really keenly the sense that it was lagging behind current events. And when the 2016 election happened, like current events were happening. Like a lot (laughs) of things were happening. Events were (laughs) definitely current. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, books can have a lot of power, I think, but it felt frustrating to me that they weren't always wielding it or they weren't really, they were very limited in how they were able to respond. Like, for example, I worked on a book that was kind of a very direct response to Trump about someone very high up in the Trump administration. And for several months, you know, he was like constantly in the news. It was super, super relevant. By the time the book came out, he'd of course been fired by Trump Uh, and it was no longer important whatsoever. And it had been one of the most exciting projects I worked on and kind of swiftly became not super, you know, interesting, but no longer, you know, super relevant. I think I just felt really frustrated by the pace and ended up taking a bit of a detour. I kind of thought the answer to all this was that I wanted to, you know, be in politics directly. And so I moved to DC and lived there for like roughly a year and a half and uh, like working in democratic politics and also had a kind of mixed time there and ultimately felt like I wanted to find something that united these two paths that allowed me to be involved in the kind of intellectual and creative production of publishing, but that felt a little more engaged actively with current events and politics. And I think the drift has been something of a synthesis between those two because it moves a little faster Um, It's a little more overtly political and we kind of have the power to shape that as much as we want. Beautiful. It's really exciting. And it is very creative. Um, You're shaping not just each issue, but you're shaping the mission of this publication and the trajectory it's going to go on. Can you tell me a bit about the inspiration behind the the name, The Drift? Oh my God, the name was so hard. (laughs) <laughs> just we it took us forever to commit to it the drift was sort of like the um the one in our back pocket in case we couldn't come up with anything better for like a year yeah it turns out it's really hard to name a magazine <laughs> and we did all this googling where do you come up with this and had several nights of like throwing words at each other I um, love the name the name came from it actually did come from a real place um which is that I visited this archive as a research assistant um, right after the end of college and was reading this kind of very self-aggrandizing young man um, who was writing about the, you know, 40s and 50s. And he was writing about, in in a diary, I think, or maybe a letter, uh, how all the young men were writing novels and founding little magazines to capture the drift of the times. Uh. And uh, uh, somehow I uh, came back across that quote when we were looking for names and I thought the young men thing makes it kind of perfect. And um, we were (laughs) trying to capture the drift of the times. Oh, yeah. And the times make a lot of people feel adrift. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think there's also a little bit of an element of that, of the kind of young people in this day and age feeling a little Etsy. You got me there. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people in our generation can connect to that feeling on some level of being adrift or being uprooted. Can you tell me about how you might have felt adrift at some point in the last five years and what helped root you? I felt adrift all the time. It's really hard to know what to do with your life after going to a school like Harvard and having a ton of opportunities open to you ostensibly, but also not knowing exactly where those opportunities are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, especially if you're interested in the arts or in writing or film, I at least had this sense coming out of college that um, these were just really closed off worlds and I didn't know where the entry points were. And I knew I wanted to do something in the world of arts and ideas and didn't exactly know what. And so I think, yeah, a lot of my experience of the last five years has been consuming a lot of culture, reading a lot and not knowing where I fit in all of it. Uh, So I guess the drift has been very anchoring in the past year. Um, great. Oh God, I got to stuff it with the nautical metaphors. No. <laughs> Your no. subtitle. <laughs> oh wow, it's not even it's not even a mixed metaphor, which is what's truly horrifying about that. Kiara, what about you and your your drift and your route? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I feel constantly adrift. <laughs> I mean, when are we not adrift? <laughs> yeah, it feels like the prevailing mood a little bit, but yeah, I mean. It's very hard to know what to do, particularly I felt, I mean, I just felt so destabilized the year after we graduated. I don't want to totally overstate the election, but that felt like part of it, a little bit of a rude awakening after I felt like I was in a very, very sheltered place throughout college, very much, you know, immersed in the world of, you know, everyday life at school, not paying as much attention as I should have been to kind of the rest of the world. And I agree that like being able to start our own thing makes such a difference in terms of feeling rooted and, and also just feeling like you're steering your own ship to continue the nautical being <laughs> here. Don't stop. <laughs> um, it can be, I think, very disorienting to leave school and, and be part of a, like a very big corporation or a big team, be at the bottom of a hierarchy. You know, I mean, you do have to, you know, pay your dues, so to speak, but Maybe you don't, you know, or you don't always, or you don't for that long. And I think it has felt really, you know, to use a word that I hate, like empowering to start something and to really see it being made in real time. And I'm just regretting that neither of us used the word unmoored. <laughs> oh, that was the, that was what I was trying to say when I was saying up, uprooted. I was trying to say unmoored. <laughs> Thank you for bringing it back. Um, yeah. I think just to say what you're saying about the empowerment of creating something, <laughs> um, I think part of it is also like the means of production of, of for, for, for creatives and, you know, whether that's like producing music or producing a magazine or producing a podcast, um, the means of production are much more available. And in some ways, I think that, I mean, it makes it so that creating things is very common but also that 
I don't know. Is it? I, I sort of feel like people feel like they have to create things more. Yeah. Do you feel that way? I think so. In a way, it, it makes it a lot more important what you choose to put online because it is so easy to launch something like a magazine or a podcast or, um, you know, anything. Put out your album. It, it matters if it's good. At least I think so. I think it does matter because it's so noisy and our lives are so noisy and social media has taken a lot from people, you know, it's taken, it's scattered our attention. And so if we're going to add to the noise, <laughs> we better have something to say, hopefully. Um, but that intentionality definitely feels very present with, with the drift. I'd love to give people who are listening, who haven't had a chance to read it yet, a window into what it's like. So maybe Kiara, do you think you can tell me just about one piece that stood out to you? Oh, it's so hard because we work on every piece so much. They're like all our children, I feel like. In addition to obviously being the writer's child, like really feel like we <laughs> put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into every piece and every issue too. I would say maybe just to kind of go back to the beginning, we were drawing from a small pool and you know, because it's hard to convince strangers to write for a magazine that doesn't exist yet, right? So we did have to rely a lot on our friends. And one piece that we worked on for the very first issue that I felt like helped consolidate the Drift's ethos early on was like a part book review, part essay, little bit of personal narrative piece that was about American foreign policy. So huge topic, anchored to a book, to uh, Samantha Power's memoir, and uh, written by our friend Krithika, who was the year above us at Harvard, um, who's an amazing journalist, and had reported and lived in some of the same places that Samantha Power had. And so she was able to bring together like a review of one book, a kind of large-scale critique of American foreign policy of the past 20 years, and also color it all with her own direct experience. And I felt like that piece, again, like Every piece we work on, we love. We wouldn't spend months working on them if we didn't love them. But that was an early piece that helped, I think, crystallize a little bit of the drift approach, that we really like to be able to go very in-depth, write about things that are, are published things that are very relevant and feel like they're you know important to kind of things that are happening in the world, and find the right person for the topic, make some grand statements, but also really rooted in, in experience and analysis. I managed to get a hold of Krithika Varagor and ask her to share a reading of an excerpt from her Drift essay, Nothing to Apologize for, Samantha Power's Bosnia Syndrome. Imagine for a moment, though, that the U.S. had not intervened in Bosnia in 1995. Her new memoir might be called The Education of a Nihilist. More likely, she might not have reached a station in life to write a memoir at all. Power has only lived in two countries in her adult life, the U.S. and Bosnia, and it shows. Like Samantha Power, I'm a child of immigrants who grew up identifying wholly as an American, a sensibility nurtured from our suburban public schools to our private universities. Like Power, I moved abroad a year out of college to work as a freelance foreign correspondent, and like her, I took the LSAT just in case. Unlike her, I went to Indonesia.
This review essay started as an assignment, which was already, I think, um, a spark of genius from Kiara and Rebecca. And I think it was the best editing experience of my life. And I've never had any other job than being a journalist. Um, I think what's great about The Drift is that Rebecca and Kiara really get down in the trenches with you. And they're not just making line edits um, with these really long pieces. They're really taking your ideas seriously, pushing back on them, and working to make the arguments as smart as possible. And I really appreciated it. Um, it took it was a months long process, but I think it was really worth it. And that's the kind of effort that goes into every single piece that gets published on the drift. Can you tell people where they can find the drift? Thedriftmag.com. And they can also subscribe or donate if they feel so inclined, especially our peers who may have gone into more lucrative lines of work. Listen uh, up, y'all. <laughs> this is gonna be, I'm just going to do this very shamelessly, okay? Um, totally shameless. Yeah, I mean, we are. We, we want to be a venue for young writers, and we work really hard, and we want to be a place where young writers can publish their first stuff and can bring interesting ideas into the conversation. And if you think that's important, I please think it's do important. Or uh, get in touch with us if you want to be more involved. If you have um, gone into one of the lucrative... We know you're out there. Soul crushing professions and want to, you know, do something for your soul. Yes. Uncrush your soul. Yeah. <laughs> the we drift need and that. anchor. Uncrush your soul. Like striking out with a new thing like this, I feel like I swing wildly between like total imposter syndrome, like how are we doing this? We're like young and I've never done this before. Like, how can we possibly make a magazine? It's crazy. We don't know anything. To, and then back to the other end, like wild overconfidence. Like, oh, all of this is like so easy and we're so good at it. And like everything else is fake if other people are kind of doing this too. <laughs> like nothing's as real as I thought it was. And so <laughs> I think having collaboration and a really strong core team like helps keep me balanced in that way it's just not swing so wildly kind of between those two poles but to feel like never getting either too overwhelmed or too overconfident but feeling like okay we're taking this one step at a time we're like if there's something that one of us isn't thinking of the other one is thinking of it and we kind of balance each other out in that way I like it I'm, I'm envisioning like two sine waves <laughs> canceling each other out into silence. <laughs> it almost doesn't happen that we have a different opinion about a draft or a pitch these days. It's a little uncanny. It's we'll look at the same thing and, and come up with the same uh, response, uh, just because we know at this point what we what we want to be making, what we want to be adding. Yeah, and and on a more sort of personal note, in the fall um, when my mom passed away, um, Kiara took over everything for a while. Um, and, you know, I obviously, I, I, I was offline uh, for a bit and just having um, a partner who I completely trusted and who could step in and manage both of our jobs for 
a couple of weeks uh, was just totally invaluable and incredible to me and, and made this thing that we're doing feel real in a, in a new way, right? That we had this team that could kind of step up and handle it, that it could accommodate something like that. Finding a really good collaboration um, is worthwhile and great uh, because it makes your life a lot more fun and interesting. And it's, you know, when you're doing solo creative projects, you don't get to text somebody about all of the minor frustrations and all of the minor joys. And it's really fun to have that. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I really hope that that energy is translating to the rest of our team. Like as we're kind of growing and bringing new people on, of course, there's a learning curve with kind of letting people in onto all the kind of unspoken things that we've decided or, you know, the habits that we formed or the things that are implicit to us now, you're translating to other people what our process is and how we think about things. Uh, It takes a bit of time, but I'm hopeful that so far so good. And hopefully as more people come on, we're able to widen the circle of collaboration. If you had to give a piece of advice to yourself five years ago, when you graduated from college, what would it be? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I would have necessarily taken my own advice, but um, the, or that I took anybody's advice around, around the time I was graduating. Anybody who's ever started a thing has once been at the point of not having started that thing. So if there's a thing you want to do, even if you feel totally unqualified for it and totally like an imposter, you know, everybody's been unqualified before they're qualified. It's worth putting in the time and the effort. Um, you, you kind of won't regret trying. It seemed like impossible odds that it would, you know, become a thing people read or that was part of like the discourse, quote unquote. And then we realized after the fact, well, anyone who started a magazine, you know, has at one point been just a person. So yeah, like don't stress about it so much. Thank you. That's such a good piece of advice. I'm taking that piece of advice right now. Kiara, how about you? Um, I mean, I don't want to belabor the collaboration point too much, but I do think I would, my advice is to like find people to collaborate with and to really trust that and go with that. And, and to really kind of draw on on the people who you've connected with in college or new connections that you're making and find ways to work with people because everyone, I think many people want to start things or they want to talk about things. They want to work on some aspect of some project. And I think, you know, so many people are in jobs where they want to have creative outlets on the side. They're just, there's so many opportunities to collaborate on things. And the biggest thing I think that has helped me feel like I can do anything is working with other people, working with Rebecca, working with the other people on our team. It's just so like, again, empowering <laughs> <laughs> to the black people, you know, and feel like you're creating something together. It's so much less daunting. I mean, I think I struggle sometimes to do things on my own. It's easy to let myself off the hook and say, no, like I, I won't do this or I won't go after this thing that's scary. And it's just so much less scary when you're doing it with other people. Don't let yourself off the hook. Read the drift <laughs> and anchor. I forget the, the last part. An empowering experience. <laughs> <laughs> Empower yourself. <laughs> you um, beautiful. Anything. You never know if there's going to be a pandemic. There could be another one. Like you can't really make fun. <laughs> oh. You can check out the Drift magazine for yourself 
at thedriftmag.com. The music in today's episode was created by yours truly. The editing was done by myself with contributions from Rebecca and Kiara. This is one of the benefits of interviewing editors. And final edits and mixing are by Shez Manzor. This podcast is supported by the Office for the Arts at Harvard and the Harvard Alumni Association. You can learn more about the show at 16artists.com and subscribe to us anywhere you download podcasts. If you have any feedback on this new series, I'd love to hear from you directly. You can find me at R-E-Y-L-X-N on IG, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to 16 Artists.